0: Love hate relationship with candy because I eat it. We never eat too much. I was talking to somebody. Uh, in fact, it was you, Pax. Right? He says these are. This is like crack. You get a pack of these and it's just all gone. I got a whole king size here. There's like four of them in here. It gets gone in a minute. And that, and that maybe maybe it's not candy for you. Maybe it's something else. But but you uh, you indulge in it. You give yourself over to it. You give in. You eat the whole tub of ice cream or you binge watch something or whatever it is. And uh, you do it because you like it and you enjoy it and it's this beautiful thing. But You don't always feel that well afterwards, sometimes physically even. Uh, And I think in some ways, what I want to talk about today, that's a helpful metaphor. It's a helpful metaphor for evil. There's nothing necessarily, there's nothing evil about Reese's, but uh, it's a tweetable quote right there. But evil often works in this way. On the front end, on one side of the coin, it's this invitation to do something you would enjoy. Ah, Adam and Eve, they are looking at the fruit, the one fruit they're not supposed to eat, and he says, if you read the story, Satan says, ah, but do you see how good it looks? It's good, pleasing to the sight and pleasing to the taste, and it'll make you like God. It'll give you the knowledge of good and evil, so it's like this, like, it's special, it's powerful, it'll... As the New Testament writer says, it's the lust of the flesh and lust of the eyes and the pride of life. But afterwards, even in the story of Adam and Eve, maybe they don't have a stomachache from the apple, I don't know, that's not in the story, but they do experience an immense amount of shame. Immense amount of shame. Today we're continuing our series on the stranger things of faith, and today we're going to talk about Satan. And while you might think of Satan as this Red devil with horns and fire and legions of demons. In scripture, Satan is really just a character in that kind of story that I just described. In fact, the best way to understand Satan um, is what Satan represents. The best way to understand Satan and what Satan represents is to understand what his name means in the first place. So Satan's name appeared in the Hebrew Bible, um, and Satan, his name, isn't as much a, a name in the Bible as it is a title. Uh, which is why in Hebrew, when it talks about Satan, it's not saying Satan is like Joe, but the Satan. Um, and it means two things in Hebrew. And these these will give you a picture. This is where we're going to go today. And it's the same sort of vicious cycle I just described. It means adversary. It's one one way to translate Satan. And it means accuser. So in Old Testament stories of Satan, um, it's referred to as the adversary or the accuser. And if you want to understand Satan's role in the biblical narrative and even in life today, that's that's... That's the summary, adversary and accuser. As an adversary, he's often seen suggesting to people you know, to disobey God because as an adversary, he's at odds with who God is. He finds clever and sneaky ways to convince people that to live at odds with God as well. But he doesn't stop there. And this is the part that's truly sinister, maybe even causes the most harm because he's not just the adversary or someone who's at odds with God and tries to get us to be at odds with God. He's the accuser, which means he calls us out when we fail to live up to God's standards. His powers are kind of summed up in these two modes. As the tempter, he influences and sways us to to join him in this war against God. But as the slanderer, he influences and sways us to think that we've gone too far that we're too far broken, and that God would have nothing to do with us. Slanderer, by the way, is the Greek word for uh, the devil. It means if you were to translate devil in the New Testament, which is written in Greek, not Hebrew, uh, in proper English, it would be the slanderer, someone who uses their words to tear people down instead of build them up. I'm sure you can think of people whose favorite thing is to tear people down instead of build them up. They would be, in a very literal way, the devil, slanderer. It's like someone saying to you, Yeah, you should totally lie to your boss. Your boss is the worst. You'll get away with it. It's totally fine. You should totally lie to your boss. And so you do it. And then the next day, that same person's like, Hey, boss, did you hear what Joe did? He totally lied about it, this thing. And, but he did it because that's who he is. He's a liar. And I wouldn't trust him. And he's not a good guy. Joe the liar, lying Joe. On one side of the coin is Satan the adversary or the tempter. On the other side is Satan the accuser or the slanderer. Regardless of your thoughts on Scripture or Satan, you can see how this would be just a really vicious cycle. And if we're honest, I know there are people here who've been in that kind of vicious cycle. I eat the candy and then I feel terrible about it afterwards. Or insert your vice of choice. Not only the Adam and Eve story, uh, but there's this other story in the New Testament that follows this same pattern, the story of Judas. It says in the Gospel of Luke that Judas was overcome by Satan, that Satan entered him or something like that. And Judas does what, you know, as the story goes, he betrays Jesus, he sells him out for 30 pieces of silver. That's where he was tempted, and he's at odds with God, and he's doing the wrong thing. But if you remember how Judas' story ends, Judas realizes He realizes all that he's done. It says that he's overcome by remorse. He even gives the money back, and then he takes his own life. The adversary, do this thing. You shouldn't do it, but, you know, were you really not supposed to do it? Is that really what God said? But then the accuser, who layers on the shame and the pain and the guilt the ways in which we've messed up to the point where we don't even want to do this anymore. So I want to start uh, with a story about Satan that that helps us deal with how do we respond to Satan as the adversary as well as, as the accuser? It's one of my favorite stories of Satan. It's a very simple story. It's one that maybe you haven't read before. Um, but uh, it's this interesting story of Satan. It's one of my favorite stories of Satan because Satan's not allowed to say anything, which maybe is the ultimate lesson here. He's not allowed to talk. In other places, he's allowed to talk. Bad things happen. But he's not allowed to trick anyone. He's shut down right from the beginning. It's found in the Old Testament. It's found in the book of Zechariah. So if you have your Bibles with us, that's where we're going to go. We're going to look at this story where Satan shows up in the story of Zechariah. Zechariah is a prophet. He's speaking to the people after they've experienced generations of war and violence. Many of their people had been killed. Others had been taken hostage and made prisoners of war. They are carried off in exile. Their houses were ransacked. Their towns were left in ruins, and their fields and vineyards are destroyed and and taken over, or if they're not destroyed, taken over by foreign leaders. And with all that has happened, someone needs to be held accountable. So they, they were overthrown. Um, because the people of God had turned from God and started worshiping idols and forsaking the poor. And the, the people who would be held accountable were the leaders of the people, the kings, the prophets, and the priests. And one of their leaders, the high priest, the priest who was in charge of all the other priests, his name was Joshua. Not Joshua from the walls that got tore down, but this is different Joshua entirely. He's a high priest at this time. And this priest had messed up. He had messed up himself as well as in which the ways that he had led his people. And we don't know all the ways in which he's messed up. Um, It's not given to us, but we know it must have been bad enough because he's brought before God. This is how Zechariah tells the story, this vision that Zechariah the prophet has, starting with Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. There's not a lot of stories in the Old Testament where Satan shows up, so I'm interested in this. This is interesting. You've got Satan in the book of Job. You've got, you've got a devil-like character, the serpent in Genesis 1. But You've got Satan who incites David during the, 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 the story of the chronic. But, but there's not a lot of stories where Satan pops up. And, 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 and so here's Satan. Now, as I mentioned, Satan's name can mean adversary or can mean accuser. And here's a good example of how his name is being used to mean accuser. In fact, the verb accuse is the same word as the noun Satan. So you could translate this passage this way. Go to the next slide. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest and standing before the angel of the Lord and the accuser standing at his right side to Satan him. The Hebrew word's the same. Right? This is a play on words. One of the scenes that we see in the Old Testament is, is Satan standing before God. It's kind of unique. You don't, you don't see this kind of image in the New Testament. Satan has a different role. But, but in the Old Testament, you see this scene where, God, where Satan and God are interacting in, in almost like a courtroom. God is the judge, and Satan is the angel charged with building cases against people and laying charges against them. This is a picture we get in the book of Job, if you've read it. God has his angels roaming the earth, and they all come report to him, and Satan is amongst them. And God talks to Satan in his courts, and Satan talks about how he's been roaming and how he's been investigating and how he's brought this case before God and Job. The whole scene is very much this courtroom drama. And here we see a similar set. God is the judge. He's on the throne. And Satan is the prosecuting attorney, ready to accuse Joshua, ready to lay charges against Joshua, the person who's on trial. You can almost imagine the prosecutor standing there, you know, behind the desk. He's got all of the papers, maybe a line of witnesses, you know, ready to convince the courts that the priest is guilty. And here's the thing we know. The priest was guilty. That's important. Don't forget that. The priest was guilty. The priest, had, we don't know what he'd done, but based on the context, the priest was not innocent here. In fact, it later says that his clothes were filthy, which is a way of saying he's definitely guilty. There's blood on his hands, so to speak. And, And in the Old Testament, God is known for being fairly violent. We're at the end of a story where God has punished the people. Joshua, who's standing on trial, his grandfather was executed by Nebuchadnezzar, and his father, who was also a priest, had been sent into exile, into Babylon. So Joshua's like looking at his family line. He's like, this isn't This isn't going well. You know, this is not going well. And he can only assume that some sort of similar fate will fall on him as he stands on trial before God. I'm either getting executed or sent into exile. And in those choices, I'm like, exile, please. But it's not going to end well. Can you imagine standing before the God of the universe, knowing you've messed up, knowing what has happened to the people who've messed up like you and just waiting for the sentence. And knowing this, Joshua is standing before God. And the question remains, who's going to talk first? Will God skip the trial? He knows everything already and just level the sentence? Or will Satan give a chance, be given a chance to lay out his accusations against Joshua? Now here's what I would do. Here's my best advice in a situation like this. Be the first to speak up. Just just own it. Everyone knows. Satan obviously has the case. God knows already it's being God. So you you can find yourself in a situation like that. He's like, no, here's what I've done wrong. I will accept the responsibility for my actions. It's the best advice I can have. That's not what happens here. God is going to speak first. He raises his voice. Maybe he stands up. He quiets the court. And and you can just almost imagine Joshua. He's like, okay, what's going to happen? Like God's just skipping right to the verdict. Verse 2, and he says, he says it. The Lord rebuke you. Satan. Josh has got to be like, yep. not me. Whew. Imagine you're in court and you have this person who's known as being fairly di- diabolical, you know, not a great guy, knows what you've done wrong, might be given the chance to share it with somebody who could really hurt you. Later in the gospel, Jesus says, don't fear people who can kill your body. Fear, fear the one who can cure your body and your soul. Fear God. This is serious. And you've got somebody who can testify what you've done wrong. And before they even have a chance to say anything, God's like, shut up. I want to hear it. I already know. Wouldn't that feel good? God goes on. The Lord says, uh, who... The Lord, who has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. He rebukes Satan again. Is not this man a burning snick, stick, snatched from the fire? God says, think of a stick that's placed in a fire—the fire of life and suffering, of bad decisions, of exile. The stick is starts to burn, as sticks do when they're placed in fire. Maybe you've had a fire recently, as a, as a beautiful fall activity. Um, but it hasn't completely burned, and someone takes it out before it's fully burned. Do you see this stick that you've taken out? Do you think, well, this is nothing more than firewood now. It's got, it's all scorched. It's, you know, look at all the burn marks. Or do you say, boy, I'm glad I caught that before it, you know, it burned up completely. Satan's there, and he's gonna be like, let me tell you all the burn marks on this piece of stick. And God's there saying, boy, I'm sure glad we snatched that out before it burned up. Here's what Satan doesn't understand. It's what evil and chaos in this world doesn't understand god is judge of all he's the supreme Court. you don't get to petition any higher he's the final say but god is also creator of all and as creator god is like a parent to all that he creates he created it and he said it was good seven times and god sees joshua and he knows the guilt But god also sees a child who he loves and when we hear his words we're not hearing the words of a judge who sits on the throne we're hearing the words of a loving parent He's like the, he's saying to the prosecutor, "Let him be. Hasn't he suffered enough? We almost lost him. He, he's like a stick that we just we pulled out of the fire. It was burning, but we grabbed it before it was completely consumed. He could have been killed. In other words, with all of the others in our nation who have been killed, like his grandfather, he could have been sent into exile, but he's here. He's in Jerusalem. He can. That's not how a judge speaks. That's how a parent speaks." Here's what happens next. Verse three it says, Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. A little piece of information. This is how they knew he was guilty. I mean, he's not looking good. And the thing you need to know about priests this is intentional. Priests were only as good as their clothes. Part of the role of the priest you had to wear the right thing. Um, and, and what you wore enabled you to do the worship in the temple. His clothes were dirty and torn, which means he was not going into the temple. He was not going to be a priest. He was not offering sacrifices. He was done for. That's what, he's, that's what they're saying here. Like his, and it's probably a metaphor for his character, right? His character had gone so far that he can't be a priest anymore. And then God says this, next verse. Take off his filthy clothes. See, I've taken away your sin, and I'll put fine garments on you. In that moment, sins are pardoned, wiped away, forgiven. His record is expunged. He can serve in the temple again. He can do his job. He can be a priest. Later in chapter 6, he's crowned even king. It's this sort of symbol of what it would look like for a priest to also be king. We don't want to get ahead of ourselves, though. I recently heard a story from a friend. He, uh, he hires people who are experiencing homelessness to um, clean up uh, our, a neighborhood. So he goes, and, he, and they, they hire him. They pay him hourly wages, and, and it's a chance to then make some money but also learn soft skills like work ethic and you know showing up on time, all of these types of things. And so um, there's this guy there who's come to every chance he's been given, every chance that someone's like, hey, we'll pay you for these hours to go pick up trash, you know, weed, community gardens, these types of things. And he's shown up every time, and he's been doing it from the beginning. Well, the other day, this guy ends up in front of a judge, and he's in front of a judge for one reason. He's hoping to get some of his records expunged, wiped clean. And he needs these exp- bunch, because to be completely honest, like when you have a certain kinds of records, it's hard to get employment. It's hard to get housing. I mean, this is a real struggle. And so he's, he's gotten in front of a judge and the judge is going to decide whether his. His record is wiped clean. This is a true story. I just heard it this week. And uh, the judge is going through his record, and his attorney or himself is laying out all the reasons why you might sway the judge to, you know, to give him a break on this. And then he tells him about this program, and he mentions the guy who's running it who's fairly well-connected, so, you know, he drops a name. And then he mentions the fact that he's been working and that he's doing this community cleanup. and, And the judge is like, done, stop. You're good, man. Out of here. You're clean. Your record's clean. And it is. The judge has the power to do that. And it's a great story of redemption, but it's not the same story that we're reading today. It's reasonable and even beautiful for someone to turn their life around, you know, make, start making positive choices, and then, like, okay, fine, you're forgiven now. You've shown that you are worthy of forgiveness. And I think there's a part of us that expects that's how it should work, right? It's like, that's reasonable. But with God... It was while Joshua was yet still guilty that he said, give this guy a fresh start. Do you see how radical this is? And it's not cheap grace. Uh, God goes on, the angel of the Lord goes on and, and, and says this to him. He expects him to live differently. It's the next verse. It says, the angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you walk in obedience to me and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you a place amongst... Uh, These standing here. In in our world, we expect people to figure out how to live right, and then they are forgiven. In God's world, and in God's courts, we are forgiven, and it's really only then that we have the power to even begin to figuring out how to live right. I love this story. It's a small story, very few verses, but the more I think about it, the more... I find meaning in it, because in the midst of all that's happening in the story of Zechariah and the priest, Joshua, something bigger is happening. In the Old Testament, God, who is this judge who's laying out judgment against the people, you know, it's almost like with Job and with Zechariah, you almost get this feeling that God is this judge, but he's having a really hard time being a fair judge, because a good judge wouldn't be partial, wouldn't show favoritism, but God, who is the only one who can judge, seems to want to just step down from the bench and go embrace the guilty person and give them new clothes and forgive them. He wants to offer pardons. It's almost like he's like, no, prosecutor, let me tell you how amazing my kids are. That's what he's doing in the story of Job, if you read it. He's like, let me tell you about my my, my child Job. He's like above all others, and he pulls out his wallet and shows him the pictures. and Look how great they are. But something keeps him back because... For as much as he's this loving parent, he's still this ultimate judge, and he's still, he can't let evil and sin go unchecked. He can't. So this is the predicament of God in the Old Testament. In this scene, almost, we sense that something happens. It's foolish to say that God made up his mind here, as if God's mind works like ours. But in this story, at this leg of the biblical journey, of, this, of the biblical narrative, something seems to appear. God is doing something different, and it's almost starting right here. This is what he tells Joshua the priest. Not just Joshua, but all the priests who are guilty by his association. They say, listen, high priest Joshua, you and your associates seated before you. You are men of thi- of men, symbolic of things to come. He tells Joshua, this grace you've been given. Ah, it's just the beginning. It's just a symbol, just a picture. God is doing something that would make this kind of interaction possible for anyone who wants it, for anyone who needs it. And he says, this is how I'm going to do it. He says, I'm going to bring my servant, the branch, and I'll remove the sin of this land in a single day. He tells of a day when his, when his servant, the, the branch, code word branch, will remove sin in a single day. The branch was prophetic image. Uh, you kind of have to imagine a family tree. And Israel was this family and he says, if you start at the base of the tree and you work your way up, you've got child after child after child. And so they branch off to these, you know, it's a family tree. And he says, eventually, it's going to branch off to the point where there'll be one branch that's special. In fact, if you look at the beginning stories of the New Testament, it's these stories, it's a genealogy. It, what it is, is it's showing you the line of the branch, one branch that breaks off to the other, so and so son, so and so son, and eventually we lead to the story with the branch is born in Bethlehem. Poor, forgotten, under attack. And this branch, the son of God, grows up, becomes this great teacher and teaches us how to love one another and how to live differently and how to be in community. And then in a single day, or in a matter of hours, he's hung on a cross as if God was stepping from the throne And taking the punishment so people like Joshua didn't have to. So that anyone who stood before God could just receive grace. In a single day, in a single set of moments, this branch wipes the sin from the land and the power that it has over us. Just as radical as Joshua's story is... Because of Jesus, it can be our story, too, to anyone who wants it right now. And I would suggest that anyone who tries to convince you otherwise isn't a friend of God. They are the adversary. The story ends in a very simple way. It's verse 10. It's the last verse of this chapter, Zechariah chapter 3. It simply says this. It says, in that day, when, when, when the branch makes all things right, and the Messiah comes, and he, and he fixes the sin problem, when in that day... Each of you will invite your neighbor to sit under your vine and fig tree, declares the Lord Almighty. Vine and figs were signs of prosperity. It was like saying that in that day when all is made right, there will be peace in the land again. So you have to imagine this war-torn world of Israel. Many of their friends had been separated from each other. Family had been pulled apart. Some sent to exile. Some were killed. Homes were destroyed. Vineyards were destroyed or occupied by foreign power. Life was not what it should be. And God says that that day when Jesus comes and he makes things right, there'll be a day where you'll be able to sit back on your front porch in this beautiful vineyard and sit under the shade of fruit trees and just enjoy life again. Wouldn't that be great? That's what I want. Just a nice back porch, warm day, not too hot. I'm not a fan of summer. This is not, this is, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not afraid of cold. But, you know, just a nice warm day, shady tree. Good food, fresh off from the vineyard. Good drinks, friends to enjoy it with. This kind of community—that's where this story is headed. That's what—that's it, where it's all pointing to. That—that's—that's—that's that's, that's the point. And here's why. There's this other theme that I see in the stories of Satan. So often, Satan is interested in tricking and convincing people and asking clever questions. To get them to care only for themselves, as the uh, person who is at odds with God, this is one of his tactics. You know, selfishness—some kind of selfishness—is often at the root of Satan's conversations. You know, Adam and Eve, hey, you should check out how good this would be and what it would do for you. You know, hey, Jesus, if you see all the world, if you just worship me, you can have it all. Self-interest, pride. Judas, hey, you know what? What would? What could you do with thirty pieces of silver? You know, it's like commercial. Over and over again, the temptations of Satan is rooted in self-promotion. But so are the accusations. When we give in to these temptations and we get overwhelmed with guilt and we get overwhelmed with shame and we get overwhelmed with insecurity, we, when we feel like nothing can go right, we, we can never love anyone well, we, we feel that we can never be loved well, and our shame, it forces us to run, it forces us to quit, Our shame is just as much about focusing on ourselves and cutting ourselves off from other people as selfishness is. Both of these, selfishness and shame, pride and and self-pity, temptation and insecurity, both, they leave us more lonely than we could ever imagine. They don't produce communities where there's peace, where there's joy in each other's company. They don't produce a world where We invite each other to sit down and drink wine and eat good food. And even when it might produce that kind of world, it's not a peaceful conversation. It's filled with comparisons and backstabbing and gossip. Just as much as God's ultimate goal is for us to be one, to be in a loving community, I would say if Satan represents everything that would be opposed to that, the selfishness, the pride, the shame, the guilt that keeps us, that isolates us, This story started in a really simple place. It was a courtroom. God on the throne, the guilty standing here, the accuser ready to accuse. But you have to remember this the accuser wasn't given a chance to talk, he doesn't get a chance to accuse Joshua of anything. He doesn't, get a, he doesn't get a say. I think when we mess up, when we feel we've done too much harm and gone too far, when we can't be loved anymore, I know at times I'm a, I'm a, that's when I'm most afraid to go to God. I'm afraid to go to the courts of God. I'm afraid that, that somebody might rap me out and, and say all the things that I'm too afraid to even say to myself. And that God is this judge, and, and if God knew what I had done, then... Uh, it's just best to stay out of God's presence. So we avoid the courts of God. But I want you to realize this. It's the courts of God that, that all of the accusations possible, all of the true ones, those are the worst. All of the true accusations that could be said about you as well as the false ones, the ones that are slander, they don't have a say anymore. They're not allowed to talk. They don't even get a chance to speak. You, you want to be free of accusations? You want to be free of the judgment or the fears of the, oh, if people found this out about me? You want to be free of that? Go to the courts of God. They're not giving a voice anymore. You enter into the courts of God, judge as God is, and you will be sentenced with grace. Jesus made sure of that. The accusations you fear will be taken off like filthy clothes, and you'll be given a fresh start. That's the power of God's grace, and that's the one thing that can make us who we are called to be. I'm going to invite the band to come up, and we're going to spend some time sharing in the Lord's table a story of grace. Where Christ on that one day removed sin from the land, and his body was broken, and his blood was shed. That we might share in it. That even Judas sat at the table and ate of the bread and drank of the cup.